Hear, hear the word of God from the beginning and the end of the gospel of Mark. This is chapter one. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, as it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once, the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. <clears throat> and now to the last chapter of Mark's gospel. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked, but the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here, he has risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. The woman fled from the tomb trembling and bewildered, and they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. This is the word of the Lord. You may notice we've already read both of these passages. We read the Mark passage a couple weeks ago, uh, the first chapter, and then the last chapter we read at Easter. And woo, Easter service, that was Praise God. It was, it was awesome. We sang, we worshiped, we fellowshiped, we, you know, bouncy houses, slides, pizza. We ran out of pizza because so many of you stayed for the party. Next year we'll have more pizza. I promise. Uh, it was good. Jesus is risen. Amen. If you look on the cross, the white cloth is still there that we put up at Easter. There's a blog post that explains why we do this here at Waypoint Church. If you want to go back and look at our blog from last week, but this will stay up to Ascension Day, and it just reminds us of the time from Jesus' resurrection to when he went up and ascended to the Father, and it's, it's a physical reminder of something that really happened 2,000 years ago, so I hope you take time to reflect and remember that Jesus stayed for 40 days on the earth and taught his disciples and prepared them for the coming of the Spirit. For today's sermon, you know, it's, it's about Mark. And it's about the good news. But I want to start off with a question. Oh, I'm Danny, by the way, one of the pastors here at Waypoint, so I didn't introduce myself. Uh, I'm normally, I'm a little more on the teacher's side. You know, I, I preach, but I, I like to teach. I, I love history. I love 
Uh, I love the Bible, and I, lo I, lo I just love to teach it in the way that it, I see it. Uh, I normally have a handout, so some of you are probably a little disappointed. There is no handout. There are a lot of slides, so you can follow along with my slides. The guy in the back, when, it, when I'm up, you ever, you ever play Guitar Hero? You kind of have to keep up. Like, that's me preaching sometimes. You got you to keep up with the slides. Um, but praise God that we get to preach on the good news. Praise God for the good news, the gospel of Jesus. So I want to start with this question. What's the best news you could probably get today? Like if someone were to email you or call you or text you, probably this news is so good you wouldn't get it through text. It'd be the kind, like maybe you got into this grad program you've been waiting for, or maybe you got a lot of money. That might be the best news right now is a large sum of money to help you. Maybe it's to hear that a, a loved one or is, isn't sick anymore, that they, the surgery went well or they've been healed, or your own sickness has, or your own struggles that God has... The, the good news would be that now you, you don't have to deal with that. Um, for many people in the world, the good news might be the war that their country is in, in Ukraine and in, in Syria and Yemen right now, they're in these wars, that they would get good news that the war ended, that it's over, that we can go back to, to our peaceful life again. I don't, I don't know what would be the best news you could hear right now, but I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we're thinking about good news. That all of us are just going through life and sometimes you hear someone say, I just need a break. I just need, can, can I just hear some good news? And I think with the internet, sometimes we, we hear a lot of the bad news. Like we're, we have access to everything all the time. So you get on, and, and the, the way the news is created is to you know, kind of build fear in you and maybe make you want to click again and, and buy products and things. So sometimes it feels like there's not a lot of good news out there. So, so, so some of you might just say, well, I'm not going to focus on the bad stuff. I'm just going to focus on the good stuff. But to this morning, we're going to talk about the good news of good news, the best news, the only news that really matters in the end. And it is good news. If you say, what's Christianity about? Like one answer could be the good news. Like we don't just have a religion. We have a person and that's good news that Jesus came. So we're in this mini ser sermon series in Mark's gospel. We're going through the Bible as a church in 10 years. We teach through mostly biblical theology here at Waypoint and we normally go from a book of the Old Testament to a book of the New Testament. And in 10 years, we're trying to cover the essence and the, the big picture of the whole Bible. Uh, we did spend a lot of time in Mark five years ago, and we came back to it during this Easter season. We're going to spend 22 weeks in Luke's gospel starting in December, so be excited for that. Um, but the purpose of these six weeks right now in Mark is to stop and reflect on a few key themes about the good news of Jesus during this Easter season. For this morning, I want us to focus on good news using Mark's gospel or sometimes called The Good News According to Mark, that's the title of the sermon, as my starting point. Mark's gospel starts by proclaiming the beginning, same word as in Genesis, you know, in the beginning, God, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. It's the same word as Christ. Christ isn't Jesus' last name, it's his title. 
I'm not saying that as a joke. I'm saying that it's, it's, people don't know. Sometimes you think, people think Jesus Christ is, his, Christ is his last name. It's his title. Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word. It means the anointed one, the one who will be the reigning king and, and bring peace and prosperity to the people. The son of God, another title that a Jewish person would have saw as the anointed one, the Messiah. So that's how Mark's gospel starts off. But today I want to answer three questions. So the first one is, why does Mark's gospel have three endings? If you go in your Bible, the ending we did today ends on chapter 8, ends very abruptly. And Pastor Lawrence preached on that last week. And he also preached on Mark chapter 1 about six weeks ago. So you can go back and listen to, if you were confused on John the Baptist and the passage David read earlier, you can go back and listen to that sermon on our podcast channel. Uh, But I want to answer these three questions. Why does Mark's gospel have three endings? Why is it called, why is Mark, what we call Mark, historically in church history called the gospel according to Mark? Why are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John called the gospels? And why is this good news for us right now? So let's jump right in. Why does Mark's gospel have three endings? If you look in your Bible, it'll probably end with chapter 8, and if, depending on what translation you have, It'll have like a line or a bar and it'll say, below this, this ending was not found in some of the original manuscripts. So I'm going to read it. So let's look um, at Mark's gospel, chapter 16, starting with verse 5, what David read, I mean, starting with verse 5, this is what David read earlier, you know, and then, and then at verse 8, it says, the woman fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. They said nothing to anyone because they were frightened. So the oldest manuscripts we have of Mark end there. But then a lot of the other manuscripts that we have have this additional section. There's two different endings. One says, Then they briefly reported all this to Peter and his companions. Afterward, Jesus himself sent them out from east to west uh, with the sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. So that's one ending that's in some of the ancient manuscripts we have of Mark. Then there's a longer ending, which might be in your, your Bibles. This is starting with verse 9. This one actually has verse numbers. After Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he cast out seven demons. She went to the disciples who were grieving and weeping and told them what had happened. But when she told them that Jesus was alive and she had seen him, they didn't believe her. Afterward, he appeared in a different form to two of his followers. Sorry that's so small up there. I know some of you guys are like, uh, who were walking from Jerusalem into the country. They rushed back to tell others, but no one believed them. Still later, he appeared to the 11 disciples as they were eating together. He rebuked them for their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him after he had been raised from the dead. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. Anyone who believes and is baptized will be saved, but anyone who refuses to believe will be condemned. These miraculous signs will accompany those who believe. They will cast out demons in my name, and they will speak in new languages. They will be able to handle snakes with safety, and if they drink anything poisonous, it won't hurt them. They will be able to place their hands on the sick, and they will be healed. When the Lord Jesus had finished talking with them, he was taken into heaven and sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. And the disciples went everywhere and preached, and the Lord worked through them, confirming, confirming what they said by many miraculous signs. So, why does Mark have 
Chapter 8 is the ending, the abrupt ending, the women were frightened, then that short one I read, and then this long one. Um, if you look at most Bible commentaries, they'll call this second section, this last section, Mark's appendix, appendix, and it'll say an ancient attempt to supply a more appropriate ending for the Gospel of Mark. So, I we bring this up because we want to cover the whole Bible, and this is in your Bible. So let's look. This is from a few different Bible scholars, but why are there these two extra endings of Mark? They're not found in the best manuscripts but they seem to be added in later manuscripts. The shorter one doesn't have a verse number, like I said, and they represent two different ways that some of the early church editors wanted to, they, they saw that verse eight seemed to end abruptly. So maybe they thought, probably, this is just speculation, that it didn't have a good ending, so they took an ending from other, from Matthew and Luke. They wrote one, to give it an ending. There's, there's a couple other, there's another place in the, in the New Testament where this happens. How many of you want to say, how do we end the Lord's Prayer? For thine is the kingdom and the glory forever, amen. That's not in the original manuscript in Mark, but the early church editors added that as a way to conclude the prayer. It might have been something that they said throughout church history, I mean early church history, but it it's definitely was added because it's not in some of the oldest manuscripts. I know I'm confusing y'all, but I'm just trying to, to get through the point. So the, what's, the good, what's the good that we can learn from this section that was added? Well, the first section, we know that somebody just said, hey, this ends abruptly. We got to have some kind of conclusion. So they wrote that conclusion. The second one is basically a summary of Matthew and Luke and Acts. Now, the cool thing about the second ending of Mark, this, this second extra ending, is it gives us a really insightful glimpse on how the early church thought about the resurrection and, and kind of how they, they were already very, very early on had that theology of who Jesus was. So every line in there. I know the line about snakes is a little weird, and that's actually where you hear about the snake handling church. They get it in the King James Bible, which is based on newer manuscripts, they didn't have a, div a division saying that this last part wasn't part of the old manuscripts. So your grandparents in their Bible, uh, the last verses would have just been in there without the footnote that we have in our more modern Bible translations. The King James is about 500, 400 years old. Um, so that is where the, now obviously the snake bite thing, they're taking it out of context. In, in, Acts, Paul, in Acts 28, Paul gets bit by a snake and doesn't, nothing happens to him. God protects him. And in Luke 10, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm, harm you. And that, so, the, so this, the early church adding this at the end of Mark is more a reference, not physical snakes, but more a reference to we can crush Satan. Um, all right, so that's, so the good news about this extra section of Mark is that it gives us this great theological insight on how the early church thought about the resurrection of Jesus. The bad news is, is some people today might be like, well, then can I trust other parts of the Bible? Now, there's another section like this. There's a story in John in chapter, uh, chapter 7, starting in verse 53, about the woman caught in adultery. And it also, in your Bible, will have a footnote saying that this was probably added later. 
Well, almost every scholar, conservative to liberal, believes that Mark probably didn't write the ending, this extra ending of Mark. It, the language is different. It just doesn't flow with his style. The Greek, the, the whole thing is different. But almost every scholar would agree that the account in John probably was written by John. And it probably was just inserted later. Like it was part of the, the history and the tradition. And so, in your, so most preachers will preach the John passage as if John actually said it with the caveat that it was added later, and most preachers like me would not read the, Luke, the Mark passage and say that we know for a fact that, that Mark wrote this. It doesn't mean that it's not important. It doesn't mean that it contains scriptural truth. Every, like I said, every line from it is based on Matthew and Luke and Acts. So um, a couple things to remember, that the New Testament writings and the Old Testament writings were transmitted on, by hand on handwritten papers and scrolls. The process was time-consuming and expensive. And, but the early churches were eager to get as many copies of the Hebrew Scriptures, these new circulating Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the letters from the early church leaders, like Peter and Paul. What we call Romans now, as part of our New Testament, to them was a letter that was circulating around so they could learn about what it meant to be the body of Christ. All this was happening in a 300-year period where most of the time the Roman government was adamantly opposed to the spread of Christianity. And around 303 AD, Roman Emperor Diocletian issued a series of edicts to crush Christianity. And one of the edicts was to demolish all church buildings and to burn all Christian scriptures. So we praise God that so many have survived. So how do we know our scriptures are reliable and trustworthy? Oftentimes, some of my Muslim friends... Uh, I, I work at Duke with international students, but many of my Muslim friends have used the example of the telephone game. You guys know the telephone game? Uh, you know, you tell somebody something, you do it in elementary school, and by the end, it's something totally different. We laugh. But they use this illustration to say that that's how the New Testament was. So what we got now is not what Jesus really said, so we can't trust it. So they would argue and tell me that Allah gave Muhammad a new text because we don't have the original text. It's kind of like a new New Testament. Then there also is a well-known professor of religious studies in early Christianity at UNC Chapel Hill, and he's made a career out of trying to discredit Christianity using a variety of arguments, mainly one that says that the four Gospels and other NT letters are not reliable. This is Bart Arman right here at UNC. I mean, he's world famous for refuting the reliability of these. And he would use like this Mark passage as part of his argument. So how do we respond to this? I'm gonna play a two minute video by a, another New Testament scholar who responds directly to it. And then we'll, just, just to give you an idea of how, how, we can be, how we can know that our scripture is reliable and trustworthy.
related subject, Robin Toronto, Canada, asks you and Bart Ehrman, another well-known uh, New Testament scholar, probably share the stage as the two most recognised names in New Testament studies. But clearly, you and he are on opposite ends of the theological spectrum. Um, while this may be a broad question, what's your response to Ehrman's assertion that there's very little we can say about the reliability of the New Testament in terms of knowing what the original manuscript said? As Ehrman famously says, all we have are copies of copies of copies, etc., which renders our ability to know what the original text says almost impossible. One of the great things about having copies of copies of copies is that we've got hundreds, thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. Almost all the other texts from the ancient world we know only through one or two medieval manuscripts. Lucretius, the great Epicurean poet from the first century BC, his work was lost completely, discovered in one manuscript in 1417 by Poggio Bracciolini, and that has revived Epicurean mm. studies. That one manuscript, excuse me, we've got all these manuscripts of the New Testament going way, way back. And the fact that we've got copies of copies of copies means that we can jolly well go back to a very solid basis, much more solid than for any other ancient texts, whether it's Homer and Virgil, whether it's Caesar and Cicero, whether it's Seneca or Suetonius. Not a problem, guys. Um, and I think Bart, actually, Bart Ehrman would have to admit, yes, the New Testament text is pretty secure. Of mm. course, there are one or two passages where we say, not quite sure if this bit was originally part of the text or not it may have come in mm. somebody may have added a gloss or somebody may have accidentally missed a bit out all manuscripts are like that when, when i write a book and somebody copy edits it that, that happens now as yes. well doesn't it, mean it, i didn't write it in my experience having done a few of my unbelievable shows with with bart Ehrman as well i was interested actually when i did sit down to debate this particular issue <laughs> with him uh, across with another mm -hmm. bible scholar that actually it turned out there were relatively few really contested yes, issues yes. and even in the ones where there were it was contested whether jesus felt pity or was angry yes, when yes, he yes, saw yes. such and such well bart had an opinion on which it was he, yes, he felt yes. we could actually know yes, which yes, it yes, was yes so right, so in a right. sense it doesn't when you actually get down to brass tacks it doesn't quite seem as mis mystifying as, no, as it's, as it it's sometimes not nearly presented. as much of a problem as people sometimes think. i think Sound on? Good. So I bring this up because we're preaching through Mark and we got to deal with this. I don't want you guys to get to that. I don't want, there will be people who would tell you our New Testament is not reliable. Our New Testament is extremely reliable. The Old Testament is reliable. The New Testament is reliable. And with every new archaeological discovery, this proves more and more true. It's not like the Dead Sea Scrolls came out and then they're like, man, we, our Old Testament is way off. They're like, wow, this is amazing. How, what a good job the scribes did. There might be one letter off, one word we don't know how to translate. When they found these ancient scrolls, the older documents of Isaiah and Jeremiah from in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And with archaeological discoveries in the future, we might find additional minor technical errors which will always be included in the footnotes of our Bible. We're not hiding this. We're acknowledging this. Uh, but with the sheer amount of copies we already have, we can know our scriptures are reliable. And these copies are distributed throughout the Roman world. They found some in a church in Alexandria, Egypt, and some in a church 
in Gaul, France, you know, in the area, the Gaul area of France. And they have found some in a church in Syria. They found some in a church in all these different parts. So, so we have, we can compare them to each other and say, look how close they are. And we can tell a couple times when a word is different or there's an addition. So our scriptures are reliable. But I want to stress this. We don't believe the Bible and the good news of Jesus only because of the textual evidence of the reliability of our scriptures. We believe in faith because it's true. God has given us his word. He has given us his son and he has given us his spirit. And this is why we believe it and why we as the church of Jesus Christ exist right now, 2000, you know, 1950 years after these documents were written, we are sitting in a church worshiping Jesus still because it's reliable and it's true. And it will always be true and we're part of this global Christian community and we have the power of the Spirit and until Jesus returns, we can know that his word is reliable and true. If you want to meet with me and talk more about it, if you're struggling with this, I, I want you to know that the evidence is there. But we don't believe in Jesus just because some archaeologists found lots of manuscripts. We believe in Jesus because it's true, and the archaeological manuscripts prove it. And over and over again, that our faith is, and the church will prevail no matter what happens because it's true. And Jesus did come, and he did die, and he did rise again, and the Spirit is with us, and he is coming back. So that's my take on why Mark has three... Uh, Three sections. Now, next, I want to move into why is Mark called the gospel according to Mark? Uh, and why are Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, why did the early church call them the gospels? Uh, so I'm, most of how I, I, I get here in this section, I'm taking from Professor Mark Strauss. He kind of answers this question. So I'm going to use his format. So some of it's my own words, some of it's his words, but it's his, his way of, of thinking through this. So the first thing is, what's, what does the term gospel mean? It literally means good tidings or good news. Um, it comes from the English word. Our English word is from the word based on the Greek word evangelion, which is the Greek word for good tidings or good news. In the New Testament, the Romans used this as like a victory in war happened and they announced the good news to the city. Like, this is good news. Like, we have won a battle. In the Old Testament, the good news is referred to a lot of times when God delivers his people. In Isaiah 52, 7, it says, How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring the good news, who proclaim salvation. And then in Isaiah 61, it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And the interesting thing is John the Baptist asked Jesus when he's in prison, because John the Baptist is in prison, and he's like, so are you the real Messiah, or is there another one? And Jesus answers, quoting this. He says, the good news has been proclaimed to the poor. Of course, I'm the anointed one. As we move into the New Testament, into the letters, Paul's letters particularly, Evangelion, this word good news, gospel, becomes a technical term for the good news about Jesus in general. And that's where we get the word today. You hear the word gospel a lot in the church. It's the good news of Jesus. 
There's three passages in the, the New Testament letters that really, that in Paul's letters particular, that, that we go to when we say, what's the good news? Let's look at them. The first one is in 2 Timothy 2.8. It says, always remember that Jesus Christ, Jesus Messiah, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. And then in Romans 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel, the good news of God, the gospel promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who was to his earthly life a descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the good news. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to put it up here, paralleling it with the Mark passage we looked at this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, this is the gospel. And he says, Christ died for our sins. And if you look in Mark 16, 6, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who's crucified. It's like Paul's following the pattern of Mark. Paul says, Christ was buried. This is the good news. Mark 16, 6, see the place where they laid him. Next slide. Paul says, he was raised on the third day. This is the good news. Luke 16, 6 says, he has risen. He's not here. Paul says, he appeared to Cephas, which is another word for Peter, another name for Peter, and then to the twelve. In Mark 16, 7, it says, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and you'll see him there. This is the good news. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. The gospel is the good news, the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is my definition, I like, as I process it, as I was preparing this sermon. The promise, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended, and is reigning right now. He poured out his Holy Spirit, established his church, and he will come again in final victory over sin and death and make all things right and new. And all this is contained in the four Gospels. The Gospels are historical literature, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're narrative literature. They're theological literature. The Gospels have an agenda. They record historical events, but they are also theological documents. I'm going to look at the, this is one way to look at the four Gospels and their theology. There's many ways because they're so complicated because they're the good news of Jesus. Let's look at this. Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the fulfillment of Old Testament hope. Mark portrays him as the suffering son of God who offers himself as a sacrifice for sins. Luke's Jesus is the savior for all peoples and all nations and all people groups. And in John, Jesus, the eternal son of God, the self-revelation of God the Father who prepares us for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So what's the, good, what's the gospel? It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We need all of this. I like to think about it like this. I wish I had a diagram. I didn't have time to make one. So imagine this is the Old Testament. Like this is Genesis 1 and the garden and it's good. And we rebel against God. And in Genesis, the rest getting to chapter 11, the Babel and, and the flood and all the sin and brokenness. And then you get to Abraham and there's this promise of God. And he makes a covenant that Abraham can't hold up either end of the deal. He's like, I'll do both sides of the deal on this covenant. And then... There's all these failures of the Israelites' people. And then you get here, and you get to Jesus. 
And how do we know about Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the accounts. And it's saying all this stuff, all this brokenness, the brokenness of the people who were under the covenant with Abraham and the people who were outside of the covenant, all the sin, all the brokenness. In Jesus, it's all made right. And then we have on this side, we have the New Testament, we have Acts, the book of Acts, telling us how the church was born. And then we have the New Testament letters telling us, in light of all that and this, how to be God's church. And then we have Revelation that says, it's going to end good, guys. Right now, it's, it's tough. Right now, it's, it's not all right, but it's going to be right. And then we get to be on this side of it and we get to glory and praise forever and all that and go back to the garden and all this brokenness will make sense. That's how the Gospels fit in. They're written to proclaim the good news of salvation, to call people to faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord and Savior. Why are there only four Gospels? There are actually over two dozen other Gospels, you know, about Jesus. If you read Da Vinci Code, they try to convince you that the church did all this wheeling and dealing to change it. We didn't. We knew. We knew what's right. We knew, we, we knew that the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are, are the word of God that we needed. And we knew that those other ones, well, they might have some, some elements that could be true that the, to reject those. The church knew this. God, the Spirit gave the church wisdom in this. We're not deceived. We know that this is true. That's why we have four Gospels. They're the lens where we fully see the good news. Read them often. If you want someone to know about Jesus, I would say, if someone says, hey, tell me about Jesus, go through the book of John with them. Try it. See what God does. See what God does. So why is this good news for us right now? Like I said earlier, the gospel is the good news of good news. And I want us to think about this. The gospel is cosmic and personal. I think sometimes as Americans, we focus on the personal side of the gospel. Jesus and me. Jesus is my homeboy. You know, it's, it's, that's a good thing. He's our brother. He's our, he's our older brother. He's our savior. He's our judge. He's all those things. That's good. But it's also cosmic. In Romans 8, I love this passage. As Paul's kind of ending his conclusion in this section, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy of comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's the end. One day when Jesus comes back. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. You see, the good news is cosmic. We're involved in that, but it's, it's bigger than just us. It's, we, we're part of something huge. For the creation was subjected to frustration by its own choice, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. Do you feel the groanings? Do you feel it? I feel it. Safe families. Safe families shouldn't have to exist. It shouldn't exist. Kids should not be abused or have a safe place to go. We, should, we, don't, we shouldn't even need these ministries. But there's a groaning. Even though Jesus came, he, he says, we as the church, we're part of building this new kingdom. That's why we do safe families. That's why we do these ministries. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, those who are saved by the good news of Jesus, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions to sonship, 
the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with wordless groans. God himself prays for us so that we can live as gospel people. And he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit, the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, that is us, amen. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. The good news is individual, but it's cosmic. We're part of this, guys. Mark says in the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, and then he, he goes on and talks about John the Baptist. And there's this amazing part in this section. He says, God the Father, as John's baptizing Jesus, the Spirit descends on Jesus, and God the Father, a voice from heaven, we're assuming it's God the Father, says, you are, you are my son, it is God the Father, whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. One good thing about the gospel is when Jesus says us, he says the same thing. When God sees us, because of the work of Jesus, because of the good news, life, death, and resurrection, when God sees us, he says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The gospel is cosmic and the gospel is individual. That's it. That's all I got for today. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know... This was a history lesson. This was good news. If you don't know this good news, turn to Jesus today. He says, repent and believe the good news. Guys, if you're a Christian, know that this groaning is in us. Like the, the world is broken. Turn to the good news every day. Let the gospel transform you every single day of your life. Let's teach the gospel to each other. That's all I got. The good news. Turn to Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are good. You gave us Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and, and we get to read those. And they're so short and profound. We can read the whole thing in just an hour. All four of them, you know, less, probably about an hour. But in those is the words of truth and the words that we get to know the living God who 2,000 years ago, the God of the universe entered into our brokenness not to condemn us or destroy us, but to save us. It's the good news. Thank you that we get to be a part of redeeming creation. We get to be a part of loving one another. God, may we be that as your church. And if anybody in here doesn't know this good news, may they talk to somebody Maybe somebody around the room that on the prayer team or the person who brought them. May every person in here walk away knowing the good news. That Jesus came, Jesus died, and he rose again. And this is for us. And we are part of your good news. We thank you for the good news in Jesus. And we look forward to the day when you make all things right. But until that day comes, God, use us as your church to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.